Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. We are moving through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. Our sermon passage is on page 222. Ezra chapter 3 is our passage. You know, we've heard a lot of uh, kind of bad and discouraging news lately about the church. You know, we've heard a lot about uh, scandals involving pastors and priests and we hear a lot about declining attendance in churches. We hear about the, the growth of atheism. And you know, a lot of Christians hear this and get very discouraged. It's easy for Christians to feel like, you know, we're, we're losing. And everything that we once had is, is now being lost. Well, I saw this headline this past week, which was very surprising to me. It was a headline about some research that Harvard University did. Okay, Harvard, a pretty reliable source. And Harvard is reporting that Christianity is not actually shrinking, but it is growing stronger in the United States. Christianity is growing stronger. Years ago, sociologists came up with something that was called the secularization theory. Secularization theory. And this theory said this. It predicted that as societies grew increasingly modern, that belief in God would decrease. That as we grew and progressed in the modernization of society, the people would regard belief in supernatural beings and gods as something untenable. That was the prediction, that was the theory. But the problem is this, that hasn't happened. The opposite has happened. Washington Post in the year 2015 article, the world is growing more religious, not less. Now, that involves more than just Christians, but many people are saying the secularization theory has not proven to be true, that Christianity and faith is actually growing. This doesn't mean that it's easier to be a Christian, doesn't mean that the pressure is less, but it does mean that there is this ongoing prevailing sense among people that they need God that they long for a connection to the transcendent. And we are finding that the church in particular is unbelievably, remarkably resilient in the world, even under the pressures that it has been facing. And that's something that we're going to see in this text, and I hope that it brings encouragement to you. If you've been discouraged by the state of the church and how things have been going, this passage gives us reason to have great hope in what God is doing in the church. So, the book of Ezra. Uh, Let me give you some background information. We are, again, unsure about the human author of this book. Could be Ezra, um, written about 400 B.C., 400 years before the time of Christ. Themes in the book, God's faithfulness to his people, as well as the people's faithfulness to God. Significant events include the return from the exile, we'll talk about that in a moment, rebuilding of the temple, 
um, Ezra's teaching of the law of Moses and uh, at the end of the book, the problems uh, related to intermarriage. But what we see here in Ezra 3 gives us an account of what is happening as the church continues to be so strong and resilient. And so that's what we're going to read about now. I'm reading here from the English Standard Version. If you can stand, please. If you're able to stand, please do so. And I'm just going to read this whole chapter. It's relatively brief. Ezra chapter 3. It says this, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation and, uh, of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of um, of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Again, Lord, we ask for your blessings upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
So the book of Ezra is talking about, explaining to us uh, a situation after the exile. So this is after a time when it seemed like God was done with his people. And now we see that he's not done with his people. And actually something very great is happening in the midst of God's people. And so there are certain reasons, there are certain factors that account for this. The perseverance and the resilience of the people of God. And so we're going to look at three things here. The first is this. The sovereignty of God is at work in the preservation and the resilience of his people. So let's look and see how that comes out here. We see at the very beginning here in verse 1, when the seventh month came, that would be the seventh month of the year, the time for the Jewish festivals to be observed. And you noticed that when I read a number of the Jewish festivals mentioned. It says the children of Israel were in the towns. So the people who used to be in exile are now back in the towns in the nation of Israel. And so they have resettled in places of residence. And so the question that we might ask here is what happened? Because at the very end of Second Chronicles, what we read about, we, we didn't read that last week, but if you are familiar with Second Chronicles, you'll know at the very end there is an account of the exile. So Here's what I mean by the exile. Remember, going way back into this story of Ruth 66, remember Israel was enslaved in the nation of Egypt and God miraculously delivered them and then they traveled to what's called the promised land, this place that God promised that they would reside and the people got their way there. They found the land of Canaan. They established themselves and the idea is that these people would worship God and love one another and be a light to the nations from this particular place. But that's not what they did. And what we see in this story, particularly the stories of of the kings that we see in Kings and Chronicles, is that the people are continuously rebellious against God and in particular their leaders, the kings, more often than not, were wicked, evil men. And during this whole time, God is saying, if you people don't repent, if you continue in your rebellion, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to send other nations, they're going to conquer you, I am going to exile you. In other words, I'm going to vomit you out of the land that I gave you. So the original idea is God's going to free his people and they're going to be in this land and that's going to be a blessing to them, but it was conditional upon their obedience and the people disobeyed, and so after much patience, I mean, God has a lot of patience. I mean, these people were disobedient for a long time, but finally the day came and the people were exiled. And we read about this at the very end of Second Chronicles, and here's what it says. God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's referring to the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. That's exile, out of the promised land to Babylon. And the Babylonians, they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels and he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Are you annoyed by that sound? Oh my, yeah. Julie is working on it so maybe I should leave it alone. 
Okay, can you hear me? All right? Still on? Okay, I'm going to proceed. So here's the end of Second Chronicles, talking about uh, the exile, the temple of God, the place where God's people would gather to worship God, burned to the ground, and destroyed. So you can imagine the people's response at that time. You know, a lot of people today are discouraged about the church. Just think how they must have felt when the temple got burned down and the people got exiled to Babylon. They must have thought, it's over. You know, God has grown tired of us. God is through with us. You can read Lamentations and how there's a lot of expression of just woe and grief that the whole redemptive project is over. That's what they were thinking. But wait a minute. God is sovereign. God is up to something. Now, watch what happens. Um, The people, they're they're back in the land, and we see in verse 7 that um, they're gathering money for the masons and the carpenters. They're getting ready to rebuild the temple. They're back here in Jerusalem. Um, They're hiring the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees so that they can build this place. But then at the very end of verse 7, it says, here's why all this was happening. It was according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, who is this guy? Who is Cyrus, king of Persia? And why are we talking about Persia now and not Babylon? Well, go go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Just flip back. I'm going to read these first two verses. The very beginning of this book, here's what it says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Here's what happened. Historically speaking, Babylon exiled God's people, but eventually the establishment of the kingdom of Persia occurred. Persia came and conquered Babylon. And when Persia took over Babylon, Persia then became lords over God's people. They assumed control over God's people. Well, now there's a new boss in town. It's the king of Persia. And according to Ezra chapter 1, this king of Cyrus made a decision that he would send the people of Israel, send them back to their homeland that they might rebuild their temple. But do you notice why this happened in chapter 1, verse 1? It's because the Lord stirred up his spirit. The sovereign God of the universe moved in the heart of, a, as far as we know, a pagan unbelieving king. And God, God said, this is what I'm going to do with this man. I am going to use him as my instrument to get my people back in their homeland so they can worship me. That's how sovereign God is. Do you see what it says in Proverbs? Do you remember this one? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. We're talking about a God who is sovereign. We're talking about a God who governs all things. We're talking about a God for whom there are no surprises in human history. We're talking about a God who raises up kings and queens and presidents and dictators and then brings them down as he desires and, and as he wishes because God is sovereign. There would be no hope for the people of God if it weren't for a sovereign God doing something 
in the heart of a political leader to make sure the people got back to where they were supposed to be. You hear a lot about this. We Presbyterians like to talk about the sovereignty of God. But, you know, what is it about the sovereignty of God? I mean, what is God trying to do with his sovereignty? You know, is he just a control freak? You know, does he just want to get control of things just for the sake of control? Or does he have a purpose in these sovereign ways in the world? Here's what our confession says. This is one of my favorite um, parts of the Westminster Confession. It says, just as the providence of God in general extends to every creature, so in a very special way, it takes care of his church and orders all things for its good. That's what God is doing as a sovereign God. He's orchestrating all things for our good. Our good, that is the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, whether it be England leaving the European Union or a historic blizzard in Colorado, I mean, whatever it is, it's all under the sovereign control of God, and he is orchestrating those things for a purpose, for your good, for my good, for the good of the church, for the advancement and resilience and perseverance of his people. Take comfort in the sovereignty of God. I know this raises questions about free will and how free are we if God is this sovereign. I mean, I I know that, and we can talk about those. But this doctrine of the sovereignty of God is given for our comfort. It's so that when we look at the world and we look at headlines and we see what's going on in the world, that we don't get overcome with discouragement. Because we know that God is is in control, but not only is he in control, but he's controlling things for our good. My father died in the year 2002, and <coughs> my, um, my mother is, is still alive, and uh, she's with us today. It's 2019, so it's been 17 years since my dad has passed away. Um, so, you know, I'm power of attorney for my mom. I kind of oversee her estate, and so it's just since my dad's death that I have been able to see all the things that my dad put in place to take care of my mom. Now, when I was growing up, I, I didn't know those things. I had no idea. I didn't know the money he was putting away and the plans that he was making and the, the trust that he was setting up. I mean, I didn't have any idea. But now I look back and I can see that. You know, one, of the, one day we're going to look back and we're going to see everything that our Heavenly Father has been doing for our good to take care of us. Don't fret, Christians, when you look at at the world and you see things coming apart. It's okay. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That's the first thing we see here. The second thing is this. um, The strength of community. The strength of community. Um, Going back to verse 1. Look at this emphasis on community. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord. Excuse me, I'm reading chapter 1. Back to chapter 3. Um, Verse 1, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered, look at this phrase, as one man to Jerusalem. Um, If you look back at the end of chapter 2, somewhere it tells the number of people, it's like 47,000, let's see, chapter 2, verse 64, 42,360 people, that's a lot of people, there's actually even more than that, but they're coming together as one, they're coming together unified as a community. And and here's what they do. Um, Verse 2, Joshua, he's the high priest. 
and we see Zerubbabel, he's kind of like a governor, and these are the two leaders. So they're, they're in charge. You might ask at this point, well, where's Ezra? And the book is named after Ezra. Well, Ezra doesn't show up until chapter 7 with the second wave of exiles that come back. Um, so we're actually not going to hear much about Ezra, even though the book is named Ezra. Um, he shows up the second half of the book. But under Yeshua and Zerubbabel, plans are made here for the, the building and the reconstruction of the temple. And so we see the first thing, that, first thing they do in verse 2 is um, they build the altar. They want to offer up sacrifices to God. Well, they need an altar in order to do that. You, you'll notice throughout this passage over and over again, you see the word offerings, burnt offerings, morning and evening. The offerings are offered up. But they need an altar to do that. So in uh, verse 2, you see that the altar is um, uh, created. But then in verse 3, notice, they set the altar, look, it says, in its place. So it seems like they were able to find out where the altar used to be, right? The temple is torn down. They're coming back to rebuild the temple, but they put it in its place. That is, in the spot where it used to be, because they want to pick up where they left off. They're going to make this just like it used to be. You know, the, the, these people could have come back to Jerusalem and, and could have said something like, you know, it didn't work out so well for us last time. We got exiled after all. And, um, you know, we sought to obey the law of Moses, but Moses wrote like a thousand years before this time. A thousand years ago. You can imagine what they might have thought. I mean, if they lived in this day and age, certainly they would have thought something like, are the words of Moses really relevant for us today? I mean, shouldn't we come up with something new? Don't we have to keep up with the times? Things have changed. Let's do it a different way. Let's do it like the nations. That's what they could have thought, but no. They build the altar in its place. And then you'll see throughout this passage, what else do they do? Verse 4, they, they keep the Feast of Booths. What is that? The Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was um, the scripture's command to the Jews to observe this festival where they would build booths and then live in them so that they could remember what it was like for their predecessors to be traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Um, when Mary and I lived in Indianapolis before I went to seminary, we lived across the street from uh, a rabbi. And they observed this, and he brought me over one day to show me the booth that he built in his backyard as a way of observing the festival of booths. It might be a little bit like the Muncie Missions, walk a mile in my shoes. You know, the idea is you get out in the cold and walk as a way of identifying with what it feels like to be homeless. Well, that's what the festival of booths was like. Get the people out in booths for a little while so that they can remember what it was like for their forefathers who were traveling through the wilderness. So the people seek to observe the festival of booths. But why is it that they're doing this? Look to verse 4. No, go to verse 2 first. Verse 2 first. They offer burnt offerings on it. They're offering these burnt offerings on the altar. And here it is. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, then, it says it again. They kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written. You see what was important to these people? They're coming back as a community. They're unified around what? What was written in the Law of Moses. 
They're not just a community coming together to be together, and they're not just people who have this kind of individual, isolated, personal relationship with God. They come as a community, a unified group under the lordship and authority of God's word. This is showing us the importance, the essential importance of community in nurturing our faith and our belief. Friends, you cannot survive as a Christian in holding on to the gospel if you try to do it alone. It won't work. These people are committed together to the scriptures. They're not seeing any need to depart and do anything different. But what is enabling them to do this is that they're doing it together. Friends, do you know, are you aware of how easily influenced you are by people around you, by the people you respect, by the people you hang out with, by the groups to which you belong? Do you know that your convictions and beliefs are largely dependent upon the people you respect and hang out with? You will believe like the people around you believe. In almost all cases, there are exceptions, yeah, There was an experiment done in the 1950s where a guy found a subject, and the subject was given three lines. And then over here was one more line. And the subject was asked to choose which line is closest in size to this line. Very simple. And it was very obvious to the subject. This is the line that's closest to this line. Except what was also happening is that there were nine other people in this experiment. And the other nine people were all instructed to choose the wrong line. And so when they were all asked, which line do you think is closest to this line? They all pointed out the wrong line. And then they went back to the original person and they said, do you still want to stick with your original answer? And more times than not, they changed their mind to match what the other nine people were saying. (laughs) Now there were exceptions, yeah, there were exceptions, but more often than not, they couldn't withstand (laughs) the peer pressure. And the experiment was meant to indicate how profoundly influenced we are by others. People sometimes say, you know, you you Christians, you're just Christians because you came up in a Christian family. That's all. And you know what? I would say, yeah, you know, you're probably right. To to an atheist, I might say, well, if you're an atheist, you're probably an atheist because you grew up in an atheist family. And if you're a Muslim, you're probably a Muslim because you grew up in a Muslim family. There are exceptions, yes, I understand, but in most cases, this is the way it works. We adopt the beliefs of the people around us. That's why community is so important. That's why you you have to be plugged into a community. You have to be hanging around people who will help you nurture your faith or it will die on the vine. Glenn Harrison, psychologist, Christian psychologist, says this, because of the strength of the plausibility structures supporting the majority views in a society, If you have ideas different from everybody else, it is generally a good plan to be part of a support network. Kindred spirits are crucial to keeping minority ideas alive. I mean, our ideas as Christians are minority in our culture now, and if you want that to stay alive in your heart and in your mind, you will need kindred spirits, and that is brothers and sisters in the church to help you with that. So that's what we're seeing here. This is one of the things that is enabling God's people to persevere. They're in community, and they're rallied around a common understanding of the truth, which is the word of God. Last thing, the centrality of worship. 
the centrality of worship, a means by which God is persevering his people. So here's what happens starting in verse 8 through the rest of the chapter. Uh, you've got Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua still leading things. This is a little while later in the second year after they're coming, it says in verse 8. And we see the Levites are called in to supervise the work. And in verse 9, a number of other um, people, Jeshua with his sons and Cadmiel and the sons of Judah, and they're all coming in to supervise this work as they rebuild the temple. And then we see in verse 10 that the builders lay the foundation. So they're just getting started. They lay the foundation for the temple, and it's like they, 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 they can't wait to worship. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that's laid is the foundation. Remember years ago, we had a Christmas Eve service in this building before the, the building was finished, but we were just so anxious to get in here, and I remember us circled around here with our candles on Christmas Eve with our coats on because the building wasn't done. We were anxious to worship. Same thing here, except they don't have a roof over their heads. It's just a foundation, but they can't wait. And so what do they do? They bring out the trumpets, it says in verse 10. They bring out the symbols to praise the Lord. And then again, look at verse 10. According to the directions of David, king of Israel, they're not parting from what God has instructed in his word. And they sing responsibly in verse 11, and they say this. For he is good, the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And that right there encapsulates what it is that keeps God's people moving, that his steadfast love endures forever to us as his people. We'll never be interrupted, we'll never be stopped. And this is the reason for the people's praise. So two things that I want you to see from this. One, everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. All of you are worshipers. And everybody out in the community who makes no profession of faith and is not in any building of worship today are nonetheless worshipers. We're created to be worshipers. We all have in our heart a desire to praise something, to adore something, to look up to something. We all have this desire for something bigger than ourselves to make sense of our existence. You can see that any time you watch a beautiful sunset or look at a beautiful starry sky, your heart is filled with wonder, isn't it? That's a desire to worship coming up, rising up to the surface. We see this a lot in, in art. I mean, this is why people throughout history have been so regularly and universally attracted to beautiful music and beautiful works of art because these things lift our minds above our current world and get us thinking about what more there is out there. It reminds us that the world is enchanted, that this is a, a wonderful place that's beyond our understanding. It taps into our longing and desire to connect with the transcendent. That's what art does. That's what good art does. Leonard Bernstein said this years ago, the famous composer and conductor, he says, when I hear a great piece of music, I feel like I'm tasting heaven. And he said, I feel like when I hear a great piece of music that I'm in the presence of something that will never let me down. Beautiful music, capturing the transcendent. I think you all know what that's like, whether you're a believer or not, because everyone is a worshiper. And that's why the church will always have a function, will always have something to offer our world and our community. 
because we're telling people we know who you need to worship and we want you to join us in worshiping the one true God. But here's the second thing. God will be worshiped. God will make sure that he is worshiped. This is ultimately why the exiles are returning to Jerusalem. Now there's more story to go and you know it's not like it works out so well for them, but God is sending them back because God will always have a people to worship him again. Our Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to impurity and error. Some churches have so degenerated that they're not even churches anymore, but synagogues of Satan nevertheless there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. God's always going to make sure there's a remnant of people. There's always going to be a pocket of people worshiping him. Always. It might be really small. It might be minuscule. It might be just in one place in the world. But the light of the gospel will never be extinguished. God's people will never be cut down. God will always make sure he is worshipped. That's what he desires. That's what he deserves. And friends, if you're a Christian, that's what you were saved to do. That's the reason you exist. To worship him. God will be worshipped. Well, how do we apply this today? Let me just very simply say this. If you want to worship this God, if you want to know him, don't go to a temple. Go to Jesus. That's how you have access to God. There's a passage in John chapter 2. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Jesus goes into a temple, remember, and he sees the money changers there. Very popular passage. He gets angry seeing the money exchange. He turns over the table, gets rid of the money changers, throws them out of the place. And the Jews come to him and they say, tell us by you know, a sign for why you're doing this. And here's Jesus standing in the temple and he says, it's kind of an odd statement, but he says this. He says, tear down this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And the Jews say, what are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? And then John tells us this, but he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' body is the temple and he gave up that body on the cross to pay for your sins to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. And not only that, but he raised it up. Here we have all of these details about all the work that went into raising up the temple. Well, the temple of Jesus' body was raised up on the first Easter morning. And the call to you now is that if you want acceptance with God, if you want to know God, if you want relationship with God, if you want to know that your sins are forgiven, if you want to know you won't face condemnation when you die, don't go to a place, go to a person person of Jesus Christ whose body was laid down and raised up for sinners like us. We're going to hear more about that as we prepare to come to the table. So let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are committed 
to your church and that you will always have a people worshiping you. Thank you so much that we are counted among them. And we want to continue to worship you well today. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.